This morning, as we look at our series and as we continue, uh, the work we've been doing over the last couple weeks, one of the things that stand out um, for this gathering, who we are this morning, the people in this room, uh, and also for those online, uh, we are glad to worship with you today, and we're glad that you are here. Um, You know, when we were praying and meeting earlier this week um, as a team, one of the things we reflected on was why do we gather? And it's part of the series we're in. We're in a series called Gather, Grow, Go. If you've been at Bethany for any length of time, it's a series that we do every year. And this series really helps frame questions and it frames um, ideas of who we are. Uh, Why do we worship the way we do? Why do we engage each other? Why does this whole thing matter for our lives? And in many ways, over the last year and a half, 18 months or so, we've been all personally having to like re-navigate that question. What does church connection look like? What does being in community look like? How do I make that happen? And how do I do that in a way that uh, is safe? How do I do that in a way that honors the safety, not just for myself and my family, but for my community, right? Um, How do I engage other people well? And when we think about this question, oftentimes we can have ways of thinking and engaging this, this concept of community, of gathering, of what some might say like communitas is the the word that sometimes Jack will use to uh, talk about why we gather. We're not just a conglomeration or uh, a bringing together of people. Uh, There's a shared relationality that happens in our gathering. There's a way of being with each other that is meant to mean that we're connected, not just in terms of uh, recognition, for faces and that kind of thing, but we know each other's stories. Like, there's a depth that we're hoping to engage towards, that we're hoping to engage in. Well, this morning, what we're going to look at is frame out, when we do gather, what is possible? Like, when we do gather, what is possible for us individually, for us as a church, for our community? What is possible when we gather together. If you would, join me for a word of prayer before I read our text. Our text is going to be from Luke 10, 25. Um, But let's pause for a moment and let's pray. God, thank you for the gift of this day. Thank you for this time in our week to pause and to reflect on who you are. And we pray that this spoken word would be faithful to your written word, and that it would lead us to the living word, Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray this with Christ, by the Spirit, and everyone said, amen. All right, so our text today is Luke 10, 25, um, and we'll go through this passage. This is from the Lexham English Bible translation. And behold, a certain legal expert stood up to test him, saying, teacher, what must I do so that I will inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered and said, 
You shall love the Lord your, uh, your God um, from all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied and said, a certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who both stripped him and beat him. And after inflicting blows on him, they went away, leaving him half dead. Now by coincidence, a certain priest was going down on the road, and when he saw him, he passed on by the opposite side. And in the same way, also a Levite, when he came down to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan who was traveling came up to him, and when he saw him, had compassion. And he came up and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine, and he put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever you spend in addition, I will repay to you when I return. Which of these three do you suppose became a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? So he said, the one who showed mercy to him. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So this is a familiar passage. If you've grown up in church, it's a passage most of us probably know, um, if not very well, we know at least to a level or a, a degree that we can pull out the meaning of this passage, right? Like, if you, even if you're not in church, we have ways of thinking about this story that when we think, what does this mean? We oftentimes engage it to say, some kind of message that goes like this. Do good things. Be inspirational to look out for the person on the side of the road. Take care of your neighbor. Let us be the hands and feet of Christ extended in the world. You know, the highways and byways, let's go there and let us take care, do good, even if that is a self-sacrificial do good, right? That is oftentimes, a, and that is, a very good way to read this passage. Um, but beyond that, we looked at this passage uh, a couple months ago, and we looked at it during our Fruit of the Spirit series, where we were talking about goodness. And so we, we read it in that way. We really pressed into goodness there. And this week, as I was preparing and thinking about what, 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 what should we focus on? How, how do we dive in here? Uh, I couldn't get away from this story, albeit in a very different way. So we're going to, again, take this story that we've already looked at a couple months ago, and we're going to twist it and say, how does the story read us? You, you hear me say this almost every week, right? When we read the scriptures, we also want the scriptures to read our lives. Like, we approach the scripture saying, I'm not going to just master what it says, right? It's not just about my cognition, of the Bible. It's about the recognition that God is trying to, at the same time when we engage in the practice of reading, work on our lives and say, hey, here are things that might be uh, taking away life from you. 
Here are things that are, um, they're hindering the light of God that is able to shine through, whatever image we want to use there. There's ways to read that. So this is something we come back to often. As we read these passages, we also let them come back and read us. And when we do that, we become through, or we go through what um, Leopoldo Sanchez, who is a, uh, a Hispanic theologian, he, we're going to hear from him later, um, he wrote this book called The Spirit Sculptor. Um, and it's all about different ways that we can imagine the work of sanctification. That's being made more like God, right? Being made more like God. Again, we'll finish with a quote from him, um, and we'll, we'll dive in there. But this is a fundamental approach, right? This is how we're even engaging the prospect of reading a text. And so let us, let it read us as we uh, continue on here. I want you to think about the word hostility. Hostility. It's, you know, defined as hostile behavior, perhaps unfriendliness or opposition. And if you close your eyes and think about the word, I'd bet that you can picture an interaction or there's an image that comes to mind. There's something that you've experienced in the last, I don't know, give a time frame. It could be month year and a half, there's something that represents or captures that word, hostility, for you. You know, turn on the news. It's low-hanging fruit, right? But hop on social media, turn on the news, and we, we traffic in hostility. If you are engaged in other places, you might find it there. It's not always there, but you can see it in places that we just live in. It surrounds us. Hostility. It might be one of the defining words of the last year and a half for us. And so, hostility in this way, it ranges around a whole bunch of topics. It could be COVID, it could be politics, it could be race, it could be homelessness, taxes, education. Like, virtually any topic, you can find someone who will be hostile to another person about it. Anyway, the same happens in religion, and the same happens in church. Like, we are not immune to the experience and the reflection of hostility, which then poses a question to us. What makes this gathering of people, what makes the life of the church different than any other community that also reflects and experiences hostility. What makes this unique or different? Of course, hostility, it's not a new thing, right? It's not even a, it's not a new phenomena. It, as, as we look at this passage, right, we see from the teacher of the law in verse 29 when it says, but he, wanting to justify or vindicate himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Right? He's asking the question, who is my neighbor? And I want us to zoom in here and bring something into focus. In many of the stories we have in the Bible, we don't oftentimes hear the motivation of people. We have the action. We have that described. We have maybe the effects this resulted in. 
But oftentimes we don't have the intention or the motivation present in the text. And so when we do see intention in the story, when the authors and writers are telling us this is what he's trying to do, this is the motivation or the angle he's coming from, we need to pay attention. This doesn't always happen, but it happens here. The text specifically says the man was trying to vindicate or justify himself. So he asks a question, and this question is, who is my neighbor? And as we swap lenses and look a little closer, one of the questions that this detail, this man asking, brings up to us is it brings up that idea, what was the teacher trying to vindicate. Thank you, Andrew. Could you grab that? Uh, So it brings to us that question, right? What is the teacher trying to vindicate in his life by asking this question? Because we know the motivation. We see what's there. What is the man, the teacher of the law, trying to vindicate? Based on the question, who is my neighbor, that he asked when he intended to vindicate some unknown action. We don't know what he's done. Um, It would appear that he wants to justify his posture towards other people that he would not like to be neighbors with. If we know he's wanting to justify himself, and the question is, who is my neighbor? We can probably deduce that what he's trying to justify is a posture or an engagement towards neighbor. And so he asks, who is my neighbor? And this makes sense, given the narrative context. He's trying to engage or justify a way of being outwardly to other people. And that's what he's trying to engage. So, in this story, with its dynamic layers of meaning, um, this passage also, at the same time, as we talked about the Bible reading us, It asks us the same question today. Again, we're reading the story in a different way, but this is the question, this, this passage, one of them, that it asks us. It asks us, how might we use the Bible to vindicate ourselves when we don't want to live next to someone? Right? How might we vindicate or try and justify ourselves when we don't want to live in community with someone, right? When we don't want to be neighbors with someone, what does that look like? This is a question the story thrusts back on us, right? Again, when we read the Bible, it reads us. It's reading us today. Who is your neighbor, and do you uh, take a posture of exclusion and then justify that with a reading of Scripture? Right? So, this story just got real. Right? It's no longer a story that says, just do good things. It's not the VeggieTale version. Right? This story is deeply uh, applicable and pertinent for our time. What does hostility look like? How is that present in a community? He asks to justify himself. Do I do the same thing? Do we do the same thing? This is the story reading us. It's one of the questions it brings up. You know, for faith to mature in us, it has to engage us fully. You know, the Christian faith, as we said before, isn't just about our cognition. It's not just what we know, 
it's that, and it's also our recognition. It's our recognition of how faith is meant to engage all of us, like our head, our hearts, and our hands. So different expressions of Christianity will talk about this in a variety of ways, but generally, you have that sense that we want to engage and be engaged in our faith by what we know, who we are, and what we do. Our head, our heart, our hands, know, be, do. Theologically, it could be the idea of orthodoxy, that's your theology, orthopathy, right emotions or right being, orthopraxy, how I engage the world. All of those are just different ways to say faith is meant to engage all of us, right? Totally. Not just things I learn about God, but the depth of who I am, that's being engaged. As a side note, if you're Eastern Orthodox, you will add another piece. So when people do the sign of the cross, right, and they go, uh, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, they will go here, here, to the shoulder, and to the heart. And that's a way to say, I consecrate this prayer. I'm praying this prayer with my mind, with my appetites, the things I desire, the things I crave, with my body, and with the things I feel in my heart. Right? This, this is the Eastern Orthodox expression of Christianity. Roman Catholic are going to go a different direction. There's also different things you can do with symbolism for we hold these three fingers, representing the Trinity. These are ways of engaging prayer that aren't just petition. It's a broad sense to say we are fully involved in the practice of our faith. And so these traditions, they build it in to how we actually think about faith. Every time they pray, every time we pray, we offer this part of us, all of us. In the same way, when we read a passage like this, it's meant to read us fully. And so that's why we're asking these questions that the text brings up. For faith to be mature, it engages us fully. And so when we ask ourselves, you know, why we gather, why does this matter? matter? A big reason why we gather is for this. We gather in community, in shared proximity with others, because we recognize that faith learned in isolation is incomplete. It's not worse or it's not better, it's just incomplete. Like, I could read theology and listen to sermons that will enhance my faith, but it doesn't cover everything. I could hear in my belly, I could feel a holy empathy for others, but if I don't ever do anything with that, that's not going to do anything for me in the world. Like, that's incomplete. And if all I do is service... If all I do is um, presence with others, but I don't think about why I'm doing that, and I also don't imagine what is happening in the space beyond just the act of serving, I'm not fully engaged there, right? So this is where the whole idea, how faith is meant to engage all of us, is present. We engage that in community. That's part of why this gathering, gathering matters. We engage fully this way. And so for Western Christians, when we think about God, we oftentimes will express God as the Trinity, right? Like Father, Son, and Spirit. And Augustine, early church father, frames out a lot of how we know faith as it is. He'll talk about how there's the Father and there's the Son eternally existing, and then there's the bond of love. That's the Spirit, holding all of it together. And God, in that way, is 
not individually a father and son, but is a relationship. Like, all of that is God. If there's no connection between the father and son, that's not God. Right? You can't be a father without having a child, without having a son. So they have to exist at the same time. This is theologically, within Christian orthodoxy, how we have framed out who God is. And that relationality that's built in who we say God is, that also frames out how we then engage with each other. I can't be fully mature or growing in my faith without my relationality to other. Because my relationality with someone else reflects the very essence of who God is. This is why the theology we engage in, it matters, right? For Western Christians, this is what we believe. Again, if you're on the Eastern Orthodox branch of Christianity, the expression of faith, that's going to look a little different. They'll articulate that differently. But for most of us in the West, this is what faith is. And so when we gather, we actually mimic and we embody the relation that God is with each other. Simply put, in a theological sense, that is why it's important to gather. We do that with each other, and then that also extends beyond these walls to places that then God is drawing us into. So our relationship with each other reflects who God is. We learn submission with each other. We learn preference of my brother, preference of my sister in this space, so that when I get outside of the walls, historically, there's the sense that I am now learning every day on a Sunday how to live in a posture that is open and inclusive to the world outside. Generally, that is the theological tenet of why community matters, why church matters, why we gather. So when we gather in this shared commitment on a Sunday morning in a space to worship God, to be with each other, this is powerful. We are embodying God. Through our experience with each other, through our learning of each other, this is powerful. And that, that recognition that when we do that, we embody God, and then that thrusts us into community with others, which then, the more I'm in community with others, makes me recognize my thrusting back and reliance on God, which then goes back and forth. It's a way that faith forms and presses us into life itself as we embody who God is. All of this, God. So we hold this intention, right? With our passage today, it's asking us questions about does the way your community holds life with each other, does that reflect God fully? Right? Like, that question, how might we use the Bible to vindicate ourselves when we don't want someone living next door or in our community? It's a tough question. The parable thrusts on us. And remember, when Jesus is talking in this passage, there's another question it's asking us. When Jesus is talking, he's talking to who? A teacher of the law. We strip this story of all of its potency when we fail to recognize some of these details. He's talking to someone who knows what 
to do. He asks him, what should I do to, eternal, to inherit eternal life? Jesus puts the question back in his court and says, what has your spirituality and upbringing told you? And he quotes line and verse from Deuteronomy, or yeah, Deuteronomy and Leviticus. He quotes scripture back to him. And this brings us to uh, something that needs to go stated, right? Like, when we read the Bible, we are reading a shared religious text. Like, I think we, we recognize that, but it's worth repeating. We are reading a shared religious text. So every weekend, every week, different people from different faiths will read many of the same words that we read. But as Christians, we assert that we are not reading it the same way, right? Like how you read it is important. And so there's a distinction to be made between the Bible and Scripture. One is the book, right? We're reading the words of the Bible and read in a certain trajectory, read in a certain way, that me, that, that's read as Scripture, right? So from this place, we can read this book and then it's working on us as Scripture when it forms Christ-likeness in us. And so we don't worship the Bible. We worship the one the Bible points to. This is why Jesus in John 5 can say, oftentimes, like, you search all of the scriptures for eternal life, and they don't have them. I have eternal life. Come to me. And this is why he can also say at the end of his life, he teaches everyone, or uh, revealing um, himself all through the Old Testament and the, and the prophets. He goes step by step with the disciples and says, these point to me. Here's how. And so, reading Christianly, gathering in this space, is also a way of engaging the Christian faith, engaging the holy book, in a way that presses us towards Christ-likeness. This is a, a, a fundamental claim for us as Christians. How we read it matters. Is it forming Christ-likeness in me? Is it pressing me towards who Jesus is? The revelation of God. And so we start with this parable, right? And Jesus is responding to someone who knows the law very well. He, again, quotes letter and verse, line and verse. And then he can respond and say, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story. There's this man, it says a certain man, and it says that he is going down. So he's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Note the, the direction, the trajectory. And he's, he's doing that. He's going down, and he gets ambushed by robbers. Now, quick note about that word robbers. It's going to be the same word that shows up when Jesus clears out the temple and says, you've turned my house of prayer into a den of robbers. That's the only other place it shows up in Luke. It's the only other place it shows up in, in Mark when it talks directly about a group or people. Right? So it only shows up here in this story and in that passage. There's something to be said about what's being mentioned in this space, right? He's going from, taught from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's ambushed by robbers. And then we see a priest walk by, and as a priest walks by, he, um, he, he steps on the other side, right? So as he goes to the other side of the road, and he crosses over. And there's a bunch of ways to read this story. One of the ways that stand out here is there's a sense that if he's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, Jericho was essentially where the priests lived, and then they would go up to Jer Jerusalem to work. And then after their stint, 
we have a doctor in the house, right? After your, after your thing, after your work, then you go home and you rest and you recoup. And then you do your stint there and back and there and back. So the sense is, if he's going down, the priest is actually coming down. And if he engages someone who is half dead, if he engages someone who is um, probably stripped, right? It says he's stripped, he's naked. If he comes in contact with them, that means that the priest is now unclean. He has to go through the ritual cleansing, the purifying rites. And so, crosses to the other side and says, I didn't see it. I didn't come in contact. That means that I can go home and actually take my break, right? Again, this is one way to read this text. Following from there, the Levite, who would be almost the apprentice within their study, would have known, my boss just went down the street. He walked on the other side. He didn't do anything. If I step in, I'm actually subverting. I'm, I'm overstepping something that my boss already said um, I'm on the other side. So, fall in line. Company man hops in, other side, down the street. Passes. And then we have the Samaritan. And the Samaritan, as he's going down, he uh, stops and notice the language. He came up. Right? He came up to him. It says that trajectory two times in the text. So there's contrast from every angle telling us this is a different person coming in, engaging in a different posture. He's coming up, and he comes up to the man, and he takes care of him. We know the rest of the story. Puts him on his, um, on his animal, pays for the inn. I'll cover anything else you need. We have this angle here. Right? And as that's happening, one of the things that we might miss is how this is landing in the ears of the audience. And that audience is who? Teacher of the law. Expert of the law. And again, this is where this story gains its power again, right? Because we already said that this story asks us a question, do we use the Bible to vindicate ourselves in terms of community? Who's in my neighborhood? The other question this story is asking us this morning is, how does my understanding of neighborliness change when my enemy treats me better than my family does? Right? Like, how does who I say my family is change when my religious community, when the people who are tasked with teaching me about God don't embody the fullness of God in ways that other people do? This is the question, right? Like, for us in church context now, we can look around and find examples of what it looks like to gather in ways that feel contradictory to what I've learned about the faith. And I'm here to say this morning, those questions you have, how is that possible? How can that happen? It's here. Those questions that are raw and real and authentic and the ones that you feel like you can't ask, the Bible asks them. Scripture asks them. And it invites us to say, I have the question, come to me and let's discover the answer. You want to know why community matters, why we gather? Because that is where we can find 
discovery. That's where we can find questions. We don't even know how to articulate because it's in the passage, and then it shapes out into how I engage the rest of the world and the rest of my life. We gather so that the questions that we don't know how to articulate, they exist, they come in, they're asked when I don't think I have permission to, and God says, let's figure that out together in community with each other. This is why this gathering also matters. So we have a multifaceted faith, right? Like we have a faith that there's nothing off limits. It asks us tough questions right in the heart of the text. It also tells us to do good things. Like let's not overlook that. It does inspire us and say, hey, it's probably a good thing to care for your neighbor. Um, do unto others as you would have done unto you. But it then asks us these other questions that we think, can I ask that of God? Yes. Yes, you can. And the, where's the place to ask that? Here. In our gathering. Where we can be real with each other in that space. This is why we gather. This is what the story asks us this morning. How does my understanding of neighborliness change when my enemies treat me better than my family does? And then what does that do to faith, to spirituality? I would hate for this to happen, but I think, I think it's worth saying. In the Christian world right now, there's a sense that... Um, there's language, right, that says, you're leaving the church, you're leaving the faith. I do want to make that distinction and say, that distinction is not always uh, the same thing, right? Now, I, I, obviously, I would hate for anyone to leave the church, right? We work in a church. We worship in a church. We worship in church together. But sometimes that language that's used to say, this person left the church, and then we assume that person has left the faith, that's not true. That's not true. And so I do want to state that up front and say, let us be clear about what is happening. There's expressions of Christianity that happen in community, in church community, that sometimes people feel like they need to step out of for a variety of reasons. God's calling me to another place. I'm being drawn into other questions. I can serve in other ways in other communities. Sure, that's all valid and fair. And I, want to, I, I do want to explicitly acknowledge that leaving the church is not the same as leaving the faith. And if you have friends who, again, not even about Bethany, just the church in general, there's a sense of deconstruction, and that's horrible. Let's change the metaphor, friends. Change it not to deconstruction, where you knock down the walls, and then you have to work really hard to build it all up. Let's change it to decomposition where things have natural life cycles and they die for the purpose of regrowth, for the purpose and angle of God doing the work that needs to happen in seeds to go into plants. I'm under no illusions or disillusions that the work we do in a church makes God show up in your life. God does that work. But another image we can use for why we gather is that image of the trellis. It's actually one of the images I used when I first talked about coming to Bethany. And that image, I think Margie was on the, 
on the, the hiring committee. So I use the image of the trellis, which is what I see the church as, why we gather, isn't to actually physically make the plant grow, but it provides scaffolding for God to make your faith climb up and to make you climb up. Now, for you to grow in whatever way that goes. The trellis can go all these other ways. But by the time that we finish our time together, may that trellis that we are engaging each other in faith in this space, the one that we're using in that way, may that lead to flourishing in our lives and in the lives of those around us. So like growth in this space, just like any plant, any kind of garden installation, it's beautiful when you're in close. It also beautifies a community. This is the image that we can imagine what we're doing and why we do what we do. We gather for these reasons. And so, just as we close up, why do we gather? We gather to encounter God, right? We also gather to have questions we don't even know how to ask revealed in the lives of each other through the text and through how I'm wrestling with the text and how others are wrestling with the text. We do that. We acknowledge the real questions it asks us. And then the last thing is we engage with each other in ways that frame out what God can do in our lives. We, we are the scaffolding for each other. This is where that image kind of morphs, right? What is trellis and what is plant? At some point, you, that distinction doesn't even matter anymore because it's climbing off each other. That is why we gather. And so, as we close, let me pray for us, but I do want to, I do want to acknowledge, again, that this morning— We've asked some hard questions of ourselves, right? We, we've asked hard questions about ourselves, our church, our faith. And we're not going to answer all those today because in many ways the answers that require, or the, the satisfactory answer that is required for those questions are not always outside in. Those are birthed from inside. But one thing that we commit to y'all uh, to do is to help you and help us all discover how you answer those questions. And so may this space, may this church space, be the kind of community that presses those ones and then says, God, do the work. God, grow the seed. Let us engage with each other. God, thank you for the gift of this day and this time together. We are grateful for this moment where we truly do believe that you are alive and active, that your word is alive and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It presses in on us, and it shapes us in amazing ways. It cuts us like we're in surgery, not like it's a weapon to be wielded, but a surgeon who is cutting out things that are making our lives unflourishing. And so as you do that work, and as you do that work through each other, and as we do that in community, we pray that your spirit would lead us, that you would give us grace to engage each other, that you would come, Holy Spirit, and shape us into your image, that you would make us embody the Christ-likeness that you are. 
and may our relationship with each other truly reflect all of who you are. Divine relationship brought into community together. We pray this with Christ by the Spirit. And everyone said, Amen.